0: And for the rest of us, we are going to continue our sermon series in the book of Genesis. So if you need a Bible, just raise your hand and Usher would love to bring you a Bible. We are in chapter 18. It is a longer chapter and you would do well to have the book opened to chapter 18 as we go through this entire chapter. As we prayed earlier, I'm guessing you've been watching, you've heard, you've read stories of what's going on in the Middle East, in Israel, and in Gaza. And as you've been watching this unfold, at least to me, it seems like everyone's pointing the finger at someone else. And yet I've been sort of in this game, doing ministry long enough to know that eventually, When evil arises and people begin to point their finger in different places, eventually, eventually, people begin to point their finger at God. Where is God in all this? Is God good? Is God powerful enough to stop it? Eventually, with all of our questions and all the pointing of our fingers, eventually, we point our fingers at God. This is sort of the natural response when evil happens. We begin to ask those existential questions. And it's not just war. Whatever trial or hardship you're going through, we begin to kind of think about those questions. I, I remember my, my son, I heard my son, he had a stomach ache and I heard him crying out in the pain of the stomach ache, God, why aren't you stopping this? We inevitably ask those questions, don't we? God, where are you? God, Why don't you stop this? God, how could you be good in light of this? And in many ways, God's greatness and God's goodness are the two things we're going to think about today. It's the two major aspects of our text today. Those two questions, is God great and is God good, those questions directly get answered in our text this morning. Uh, This fall, we're going through uh, a a portion of the book of Genesis, particularly all of the life of uh, Abraham in Genesis. So it's Genesis 12 to, I think, 23. And Abraham's an amazing man. God used him uniquely in redemptive history. And yet, Abraham's kind of like all of us. Abraham got these amazing promises from God. And Abraham had to trust God. He lived in the gap between God's promises and the fulfillment of those promises. Abraham had to learn day by day by day how to trust God with his life. This morning, chapter 18, it's a longer chapter. And really, this chapter is divided up into two scenes. So in verses 1 to 15, we have scene 1, and it's a visitation. We can call it, we can kind of summarize it that way a visitation. And then in verses 16 to the end of the chapter, verse 33, we have an intercession. So a visitation and then an intercession. But really, in the midst of those two scenes, we have two rhetorical questions that get asked that we're meant to answer. And they're all about the character of God. I just want to point them out to you before we read the text and go through these two scenes. So scene one, we're asked in verse 14, Is there anything too hard or too wonderful for the Lord? It's the question of greatness. Is God powerful enough? Is God great enough? And then in scene two, we're asked, verse 25, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? That's the question of justice. It's the question of God's goodness. Two scenes that really get to two questions. Is God Great And is God good? I hope to convince you this morning that indeed he is. The big idea, as we kind of put these two questions together, is simply this. I think it should be on the screen behind me. The greatness of God is seen today and often in the goodness of God. That's what we're going to consider today. So if you will, turn with me to chapter 18. We're going to read... The first scene, verses 1 to 15. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant." Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, these uh, three, uh, three says of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She's in the tent. Then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the, tent of the, at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, "'After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure?' The Lord said to Abraham, "'Why did Sarah laugh and say, "'Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? "'Is anything too hard for the Lord?' At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. So scene one begins with Abraham and Sarah having an afternoon siesta like many of us are hoping to have later today. And the heat of the day is beating down on them, and all of a sudden, Abraham sees some men out in the distance coming towards him and he instantly knows that these visitors are no ordinary visitors and we know that because he instantly gets up and he runs toward them which was beneath Abraham but he does it anyways. These are no ordinary travelers and so he eventually gets there and they have a conversation and he begs them as they travel through it would they come and stay and you know, put their feet up on the couch and have lunch with Abraham. And so eventually they agree. And so you just see Abraham desperately then running back to Sarah and you feel like his frenzy and he's like, Sarah, what do we got in the fridge? We got some amazing dinner guests. You guys ever experienced this? You ever get that text? All of a sudden you're sitting down with your family eating peanut butter and jelly and some friends say, hey, we're passing by. We'd love to stop by and see you guys. And you're like desperate. You like look at the house and you're like, it's a mess. And you're like taking dirty laundry and you're like throwing it in closets. You're like opening the, the cabinets and you're like, all right, how do, I, how do I make a casserole with like macaroni noodles and tomato soup? And instantly you're like a drill sergeant. You're like, Sadie, clean up the living room. Calvin, clean the toilets. Whitaker, you're four. Do nothing. Just sit there and don't make a mess. Like that's the scene here. Like They're like, trying to figure this whole thing out, and they begin to pull together this amazing feast as quickly as they can. So they get bread, they get milk curds. No expense is spared, right? That, that filet mignon that they've been waiting to, to eat on their anniversary, they're like, pull it out. They get this whole meal together, all the fixings. They bring out the fine china, and they serve these guests, these visitors. And we learn that these are not just ordinary men walking through. you, you got to keep reading, but in chapter 19, which I didn't read, and we're not going to read today, but in chapter 19, verse 1, we learn that two of them are angels. And then, if you read verse 1 and 10, it becomes clear that Abraham keeps calling one of them the Lord. So, and there's some debate on this, but, but I think just the simple reading is, here we have an appearance of God and two angels. We have a heavenly visitation going on here. I mean, you might have had fancy dinner parties. My guess is you've never had this sort of fancy dinner party. So the food's ready. Abraham serves these heavenly guests, and the feast begins. This is crazy. I mean, just pause to think about it. Eating with someone is really special, an intimate thing. Like, you can't just, like, walk into someone's house and say, I'm here for Thanksgiving dinner. Like You you, you can't do that. That breaks like all our social norms. Like eating with someone is a sign of fellowship and intimacy. And God dines with angels. Or sorry, Abraham dines with angels and the Lord. It's amazing. But if you've ever had a great dinner party, you know that food can be great, but the most important part of a dinner party is the conversation, is it not? You can have great food, but awkward dinner conversation not a great. You can have not great food, but a great conversation, and it still makes a great dinner conversation. And so the the conversation begins in verse 9, doesn't it? And the guests begin to ask, so where's Sarah? And Abraham's like, I don't know, back in the tent in the kitchen, like cleaning up after this whole meal or something and then the lord speaks once again and we've seen this over and over to go over again the last few chapters the lord speaks and says abraham sarah is going to get pregnant and she's going to have a son and it's going to happen next time this time next year a year from now it's going to happen and sarah is outside the tent and she like heard you know heard her name and you know curiosity got the better of this cat. And so she begins to kind of listen in, and she's like, what's going on? What are they talking about? And she hears them say she's going to get pregnant. And she's like, I don't know who these guys think they are. I have no idea who these visitors are, but they're nuts. She's too old. Biologically speaking, the time has passed. She can't get pregnant. She's like, I don't know. Like, it's impossible. There is no possibility. I mean, th- these, these visitors must have grown up Catholic like I did and got pulled out of sex ed. They don't know how a baby gets in the baby carriage. And so she laughs in light of all of this. N- not a, like a, a laughter, like funny. This is like a heckler's laugh. She's scoffing. She's like, no way. No way. Well, the Lord responds... And says, oh, this is happening. He hears the inner dialogue of Sarah's heart. And he tells Abraham that Sarah was laughing. This is going to happen. This is assured to happen. And then he asks that question that I alluded to earlier in verse 14. Is anything too hard or too wonderful for the Lord to do? Meaning, if God can hear the thoughts of Sarah. If God can hear the inner dialogue of Sarah, if God can hear the feelings of Sarah, if God can hear the half-baked ideas, the good and the bad that's going on in Sarah's mind and heart and soul, can he do this? It's a rhetorical question. There's a right answer and there's a wrong answer, and we all know the right answer, which is, of course God can do this. Is there anything too wonderful for God to do? Nothing is impossible for God. Now, some people do weird things with this text, right? Right? Like, people put this, like, on a Hallmark card, and they take, like, a, an awkward, uncoordinated boy who can't even walk in a straight line, and they're like, this text means you can dunk a basketball when you turn 16. Let's not do weird things with the Bible. That's not what this is going on. Just think about what this is saying. Think about the particularity of this promise and why God says he's so great in light of this promise. The promise is about a child, right? The promise is about God saying, I am going to give you a child, and then because of that child, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And the language of the last chapter is, I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people. I'm going to build a faith community that's going to worship me. That's the promise here. And he's saying, I am going to, or maybe he could say this, God is asking Abraham, and I think all of us, This sort of rhetorical question. Do you believe, Abraham, do you believe, church, that God will create a people for himself against impossible human odds? That is what God is saying to Abraham. Is God big enough to build a people for God amid impossible Vegas odds? That's the context of the promise. And Sarah has a hundred reasons not to believe the promise. And you see her double down on it and on her sin, right? She's like, I didn't laugh. Now, this is just classic, right? I mean, this is kind of what Adam and Eve did when they got caught. This is what we all do. We sin, and instantly when we're exposed, we feel we, we become afraid, we're vulnerable, we're humiliated, and so we just double down on more sin. Sarah has a hundred reasons not to believe God. But my guess is Sarah would have passed a theology test on the greatness of God, right? If, if Sarah was taking a, a Scantron on a theology test, she'd be like, yes, God is great. Yes, God is inconceivably amazing. God is not contingent on any of us. God can do the impossible. God is a way maker, whatever that means. Sarah would have passed the written test. But just because you pass the written test doesn't mean you can pass the driver's test. Is anything too great for God? It really is a question but it's sort of a statement too. God will make a people against impossible odds. And spoiler alert, God does this. Sarah has a son. It's impossible. He has she has a son named Isaac. Not impossible for God. And then God's not finished. The job wasn't done with the birth of Isaac. God continues to make a people for himself under impossible conditions. Isn't that just basically the storyline of the entire Bible? God making a people for himself against impossible human odds. Enemies surround God's people. It looks impossible. Not to God. What happens when nations come against the people of God? And it looks like Everything's going to go bad. Egypt is going to win. Oh no, what's going to happen to the messianic promise? God does it. This is the storyline of the Bible. God takes an impossibly corrupt people and forms them into his people. God takes people who didn't want God, didn't want to worship God, and makes them into a worshiping community. It's impossible, and yet that's how God builds his church. God builds his family against impossible odds. Maybe you come here this morning, and my guess is that's your story. Maybe you came here as a prodigal, and you were a rule breaker. Impossible. Not to God. Or maybe you grew up and you were one of those rule followers. Impossible that you would see your need for a savior. But not to God. Is there anything too great for God to do? God is building his church, right? Jesus' great promise, he says, I will build the church and the gates of hell will not overtake the church. Impossible. Not to God. God is doing the impossible. He is going to secure a people for himself and he does this at the cost of his own son. You might wonder, like, how could God love me so much that God would give up his only son? That's an impossible situation. Yet God does the impossible to build his church. And God continues to do it. God continues to build a church around the world amid impossible odds. Just think about what God is doing all throughout the world. You read missionary story after missionary story. God is building his church amid impossible odds. Last night, my wife was reminding me of an email that she got from a, sort of a, an acquaintance who's a missionary in Jordan. And uh, he was saying, pray for this Christian friend who is at a church in Gaza right now, running out of food and water, as the church is gathering in Gaza and they can't get out. God is making a name for himself even in Gaza right now, as Christians are bowing the knee to Lord Jesus, worshiping God. Impossible. Not to God. God is always in the business of advancing his kingdom against all human odds. He does it here. He will continue to do it until his return. That's the greatness of God we see. He is that great. But I think a better way to see, or maybe a more precise way to see God's greatness is actually in God's goodness and that's what we see in this second scene that we're going to go to the the, the first scene is this visitation and the second scene is an intercession verses 16 to verse 33 and it's in this intercession that we really do see the goodness of God on display Go, go with me to verse 16 Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, and he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Shall there... um, Suppose Abram answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it for, uh, if I find forty-five there. And he spoke to him again. Suppose forty are found there, he answered. For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, uh, Okay, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, O Lord, oh let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again. But this time, suppose 10 are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. That's scene two, an intercession. So the lunch finishes, and Abraham, being a good host, walks these visitors outside of the camp, and they begin to walk east toward Sodom and Gomorrah. And they begin to kind of walk up a hill, and they're viewing Sodom and Gomorrah. And then these three visitors begin to have sort of a a side conversation. They know what's happening. These three visitors know that they've come, not just to visit Abraham, not just to give this promise to Abraham, but they've actually come on heavenly business that they have in Sodom and Gomorrah. This is a bigger event. They've got more work to do. They know it. Abraham doesn't know it, and they're wondering, should they loop Abraham in? After all, Abraham's a pretty important person, so should they loop him in to the devastation that's about to befall Sodom and Gomorrah? I think um, sometimes people we love, or sometimes just because it's hard, we don't want to give hard news to people, right? So we are like, maybe we won't let, you know, like the whole game plan here. It's like, uh, you, know, you know, telling my, my daughter, hey, get in the car, we're just going to go on a ride. And then she's like, why are we by the dentist? And I'm like, oh, maybe we'll just go see if they can pull your wisdom teeth for a second. Right, we, we do these sorts of things. And so they're having this conversation like, should we tell him or, or, or should we spare Abraham? And God is clear, no, we need to tell Abraham. And we need to tell Abraham because Abraham needs to, to know theologically what's going on. This is not just some, you know, accident. It's not just like, Ooh, uh, a fire happened. No, there needs to be a theological kind of uh, filter that Abraham needs to have so that he can catechize his children and future generation against sin and the perils of sin. And so the Lord says that that the cries of injustice have reached the heavens and Sodom and Gomorrah are great in one respect. They are great sinners. And so the Lord sends these two angels to go and to see if, in fact, these cities are corrupt. And my guess is you've heard of these, these, these cities, and you probably associate them with sexual sin, which is, you're right to do that, but, but actually their sin was even more than that. If you go to Ezekiel 16, verse 49, don't go there, I'll just tell you, I'll read it for you. In Ezekiel 16, verse 19, uh, the, the prophet says, look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, fullness of food, abundance of idleness. Neither did they strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. So the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, they were proud, they were selfish, they were lazy, and they took advantage of the poor along with their sexual sin. This city was no bueno, muy mal, very bad. And reality began to kind of come upon Abraham. Maybe he'd heard the stories of Noah and he's thinking, "Uh uh-oh, what happened in the days of Noah is happening today. God is going to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah and Abraham is seemingly shaken to the core. God says, I'm going to judge the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah and Abraham is frightened. And so he, like tentatively, he cautiously He reverently approaches God. Remember, Abraham is rich. Abraham is like stinking rich. Abraham just dined with God. Abraham has has every reason to think that if anyone could approach God, it's him. Right? He he has a lot of Instagram followers. That's Abraham, right? Abraham is amazing. And yet, as amazing as he is, He goes to God reverently, cautiously. The language that he uses is he's like dust of the earth. Do you remember when I read that? He he comes humbly, but he doesn't not come. I I think there's two tendencies depending upon your personality, your upbringing. Either you're too buddy-buddy with God. He's my homeboy. Or we're so afraid of God in his holiness that we don't even approach him. Abraham straddles those two errors. He comes reverently. Cautiously, not as equal, but he comes to God nonetheless. And he asks the question I mentioned earlier in verse 25. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? He's asking God, God, in light of what you're about to do in Sodom and Gomorrah, are you good? Is this judgment good? If there are righteous people down there, It would not be good for them to be wiped away with the wicked, to treat them the same way. So, God, are you right in your judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah? And so, in light of that, he has this, like, back and forth between God and Abraham, right? Abraham is trying to decipher if God is good, and Abraham says, Okay, God, you're you're really big. You're really amazing. You're really holy. I'm not. Abraham's like, I got an F in underwater basket weaving, and you're like Lord of the universe. But if I could speak for a moment, if there are like 50 righteous people down there, will you spare Sodom and Gomorrah? And God's like, yep. And he's like, okay, 40. God's like, yep, 30. Yep. And then he's like, 10. God's like, indeed, even 10. Now, why does Abraham care? Well, if you remember from chapter 13 and 14, Abraham has family in Sodom and Gomorrah. His nephew Lot is there. So, he's got a family reason to care about what happens to Sodom and Gomorrah. But I'm not convinced that's the only reason. Like, Abraham could have said, All right, get them, God. They're bad. But just, can you get Lot and his family out of there? That could have been Abraham's prayer. That's not Abraham's prayer. Abraham prays, If there were even ten righteous people, will you spare Sodom and Gomorrah? And I might just add, did you know that this is the first time in the the story uh, line of the scripture, this is the first time any person comes first to God and talks to God. This is the first time it happens that someone approaches God. And what does he pray for? What does he intercede for? He doesn't say, God, I want more money. God, I want more wealth. I want more comfort. The first time a man comes before God, he asks that God would be merciful on a wicked city. Isn't that interesting? Abraham keeps knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door, if we can put it that way. And he does it to pray for a wicked city. I mean, thousands of years later, we still use Sodom and Gomorrah as shorthand for evil, do we not? And Abraham prays for them. He intercedes on behalf of them. And I don't think it's just because his nephew was down there. Abraham believed that there could be, in fact, there possibly was a few righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah. Matthew Henry, that great English expositor, you I'm guessing sometimes read his commentary of the Bible. This is what he writes about this. I rarely quote people, but this is too good. He writes, 400 years ago, as bad as it was in Sodom, Abraham thought there were several good people in it. And then this is his application in light of that. It becomes us to hope the best of the worst places. Of the two, it is better to err in that extreme. How hard that is to often live out, especially in light of evil. Abraham prayed, hoping for the best. And I think he could do that because he was learning firsthand and experiencing the goodness of God. Abraham intercedes for Sodom and Gomorrah. We see this. That's what's going on. And it's clear from God's response that God is teaching Abraham that he is good in all of his judgments. Abraham persistently asks God, and God keeps responding, yes, I'm good. Yes, I'm good. Yes, I'm good. I will not just wipe out if there's a few righteous. And and if you ever think about it, God sends these two angels, and we're going to learn this later in the Mosaic covenant, that we need two witnesses at any place when there is evil for, for judgment's sake. And so God sends two angels as witnesses, like God is not just judging Sodom and Gomorrah willy-nilly. He is the judge of all the earth. And he is fair and good even in his judgment. God sends even angels to make sure of this. God always bases his judgment on evidence. Not us. We often make judgments assuming we know all the facts. And so we point the finger thinking... I've come to the right conclusion. You're wrong in this and so we point our fingers at one another. But this story ends so amazingly with one conclusion. And I know there's a lot of mystery and we ask a lot of why questions, especially in light of hard things, trials, adversity, sorrow, evil, the problem of pain. There's a lot of mystery involved in that. But this text, I think, makes crystal clear that no one gets worse than they deserve. Well, that's actually sort of a lie. There was one who got worse than he deserved, isn't there? Jesus Christ, the only righteous one who died for the unrighteous. As Jeanette quoted earlier, he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. There was one who got worse than he deserved, and he did so amongst impossible odds to make a people for himself. God is good. God is incredibly good, and we see it in his judgments even on Sodom and Gomorrah. He is good. And I think that really is how we see God manifest his greatness in the world when we see his mercy on display. God is a God of mercy. So let me just end by saying this. When things don't make sense, when you're reading the news, when you're experiencing something and you're like, I don't know how to make sense of this, it sure feels like emotionally that you're not good in light of all this. When sorrow comes knocking at your door, when you have a lot of questions, many of them, most of them, directed at God, I hope you can settle one thing today. That God is great, and at the same time, God is good. And whatever comes, those two realities will never change. And we can persevere, even in the hardest of times, because there truly is nothing too great or too wonderful or too hard for God to do. He is building his church, and hell itself cannot overcome her. Let's pray.